0: AOPA presents Never Again, True Pilot Stories from the World of General Aviation. In this episode, a student pilot finds out whose job it is to preflight the airplane. Let's go flying in Alaska in Rock Collector by William Satterberg. The incident occurred many years ago, but the memories are still vivid. I was an 18-year-old student pilot in Anchorage, Alaska, scheduled to take my first cross-country solo to Talkeetna and Squentna, two airstrips located across Cook Inlet and over 200 miles of forbidding Alaskan wilderness. To provide proof of flight, I was ordered to land, pick up a rock from each gravel runway, and return my collection to my instructor. When I arrived at the flight school, my instructor told me that I needed to get on my way as soon as possible. My Cessna 150 was scheduled for another student as soon as I returned from my expedition. To hasten matters, my instructor told me that he had already pre-flighted my aircraft. It was good to go. Per protocol, I signed out my aircraft at the flight school counter and walked to the apron. Because my instructor had assured me he had done the work, no independent preflight was performed. Instead, after engine run-up, I taxied out to the end of the runway, did my run-up, checked the gauges, which all looked good at the time, and departed runway 31. During climb-out, I crossed several miles of open ocean water across Cook Inlet toward Talkeetna, my first destination. Named after a British seafarer, Captain James Cook, who discovered the water body in May of 1778, Cook Inlet has the second highest tide changes in the world, exceeded only by the Bay of Fundy in Nova Scotia, Canada. Cook Inlet is also bounded by treacherous mud flats on both sides, which act as quicksand to anyone unfortunate enough or foolish enough to venture out onto the flats. More than one person has died, having been trapped in the mud only to be submerged by a rapidly advancing incoming tide before rescuers could act. As part of my in-flight cockpit check on this first solo cross-country, I checked the gauges and noticed that both fuel tanks showed needles resting on the fuel-empty limits for both. When I had originally looked at the fuel gauges during my run-up at the airstrip, both gauges had appeared to be pegged on the full mark. Now they were both pegged on the empty mark. It obviously did not make sense. Chuckling to myself, it was then that I suspected that my flight instructor was up to one of his old tricks and had tampered with the fuses to see how long it would be before I would catch it. I opened up the fuse cover to see if the fuse was either blown or missing. This is something my instructor had told me to check if I ever saw this type of instrument indication. The fuse was present and appeared intact. Worse yet, when I reinstalled the fuse, both gauges exhibited a slight movement. I repeated the process and once again there was slight movement on the fuel gauges. I realized that both fuel tanks were virtually empty. I was overcome by a sense of profound dread. I clearly was in trouble. The engine could quit at any time. Returning to Anchorage International Airport over open water was not a realistic option. I chose instead to divert to Big Lake Airport, a nearby short field used only by taildraggers and experienced pilots, but it was my only option instead of the trees. I radioed Anchorage International and advised of my landing plan. The tower notified me that Big Lake was not an approved tricycle gear strip. I explained that I had no choice. I asked the tower to call my flight school and advise my instructor of my unscheduled change in flight plan. I flew at cruising altitude until I was directly over Big Lake Strip and then spiraled down to an uneventful short field landing. Because of the low fuel, a go-around was not realistic, nor was a low approach. After landing, I had to locate Avgas, I was again lucky with a local farmer at the Strip working on his Super Cub. He said I might be able to buy Avgas at the local service station and offered to give me a ride on the back of his tractor. The station owner had two dusty five-gallon cans in the attic, which I bought for less than $3. Returning to the Strip again on the back of the trailer, I poured all 10 gallons into the left tank. The seasoned farmer then wisely reminded me how to do a short, soft field takeoff with tricycle gear. After he wished me the best, I taxied to the end of the strip, carefully did my checks, ensured that my fuel selector valve was on the left tank only, and did my takeoff. By the end of the strip, I was already at pattern altitude and still rocketing skyward. Fortunately, my family had a runway at our homestead so I was not completely unfamiliar with bush strips and soft field takeoffs. Dad had taught me well. I decided to continue with my mission. I radioed ahead to Talkeetna to ask for a fuel truck, which met me on landing. I had just enough money to buy fuel to reach my next stop, Squentna, and to make it back to Anchorage with the required reserve. After hearing my plight, The fuel distributor generously put in an extra measure of GAV gas in the tank. The rest of the trip was routine, although I did arrive back in Anchorage about 90 minutes beyond my scheduled return. And I had four rocks, not three, to show for my proof of trip. I also learned a most valuable lesson, to be later espoused by President Ronald Reagan, taken from an old Russian proverb, trust but verify. I have expanded the concept when it comes to pre-flights. Don't trust anyone except yourself. Too much depends on it. The Never Again Podcast is brought to you monthly by AOPA, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. You can find more Never Again stories online at aopa.org by typing Never Again into the search box. While you're there, check out the AOPA mobile app, as well as the many free training and safety courses from the Air Safety Institute. Find all of this and more at aopa.org. The Never Again podcast is produced by Royce Earle. Thanks for listening. Fly safely.